Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> All right, so now that Thanksgiving is past, we can start to think about Christmas. Because I'm sure nobody has before now. Except for the Hallmark Channel. Uh, today is my annual Hallmark sermon. Um, so I, you guys showed up on the right week, I guess. Uh, we are going to be taking a break. Uh, and so some of you have asked if we're done with judges. Um, I guess that means you haven't been paying attention. Because no, there's still plenty of judges left. Um, but judges is not a very light and... Um, encouraging book at times. And Judges is only going to get darker and darker over the next several weeks that we'd be looking at the book of Judges. So we are going to be taking a little bit of a, uh, a detour. We're going to be setting off on a journey for the next four weeks. Uh, I'll be uh, with you this week and next, and, and Pastor Justin will be preaching the next two after that. But we are going to be leading up towards Christmas by looking at the book of Ruth. And in just a moment, I'm going to explain to you partially why Ruth is the direction uh, that we have chosen to go. Uh, but uh, I just want to start by saying Ruth is going to be a glimmer of light in a very dark time. And, and uh, Ruth, in a minute, we'll see, is taking place in Israel's history at a very dark time in their history. And, uh, and really, we've been looking through the book of Judges, and we've been kind of... Uh, a lot of you have said it's basically the same sermon every week. And a lot of it is, is because we see such despair, and we see such disobedience, but yet we see incredible grace. And, and time and time again, we see the same story unfolding, and I think that's important that we remember all of that. And we're going to see that same theme come out in the book of Ruth, but it's going to be a little lighter. It's going to be more refreshing, if you will. Uh, and it's uh, really a, a glimmer of light during a dark time in Israel's history. We spent a long time in Judges so far, but now we're going to take a break to catch our breath during the month of December. Uh, and so uh, it will be more hopeful, I hope. Uh, I believe it will as we look at this. It's going to be a time of, of reflecting on uh, Christmas, looking forward to Jesus coming, even as Israel had to look forward to their Messiah for many, uh, many, many, many years. And so as we look at Ruth, though, I just want to start off by saying this. Many people just think of Ruth and they think, oh, that's real, that really nice little love story that's in the Bible. Uh, listen, Ruth is a love story. There is some idea, there is some love here, there is uh, some romance, there's some of that uh, stuff that we love, especially around Christmas time. Uh, but even more than that, as we go through this journey in the book of Ruth, I hope that all of us will see that this is m not so much just about a love story, but that it points to God's redeeming grace. It points to God as a redeemer and one who is a redeemer out of grace. He is a gracious redeemer. And so we're going to look at that over four weeks and we're going to see that God as the gracious redeemer is going to be seen in the book of Ruth and we can look forward to Jesus, the redeemer, being born on Christmas Day. And so that's where we're leading up to. And Ruth uh, is ultimately, and I've already said this, but it's ultimately a story of hope. It's ultimately a story of hope. And today it's not going to start that way. There's going to be a little bit of a glimmer of hope. But today we're going to look at the first chapter and we're going to see that things don't look great. But yet there's still hope that is built in even to this first chapter. So I hope that as we, as we continue through the book of Ruth for the next four weeks, that we will see not just a love story, but we will see God's redeeming grace and we will see a story of hope. Now I did mention Hallmark. So here's the interesting thing as I look at the book of Ruth. 
Uh, the book of Ruth could very well be the basis, the example that every single Hallmark movie and Hallmark Christmas movie has taken and said, we're going to just recreate this a thousand times and sell a bunch of movies that are all the same. Uh, and they probably took a lot of their ideas from Ruth, because as we look through Ruth, we're going to see that really it unfolds as a beautiful story. It is written in beautiful, uh, in a beautiful way. It is truly not just a historical document, but this is a story that is written with creativity. It is a story that is written with uh, just beautiful pieces and imagery that we're going to be able to take, and we're going to be able to look at that even deeper, and we're going to see that this is not just history, but this is really a work of art. And as we look at it, it kind of now in today's world, obviously this was a book, but in today's world it's seen in a lot of these movies. But uh, I, even in the title of today's sermon, I didn't mean this when I first said A Bittersweet Journey, uh, but it does kind of sound like a Hallmark movie, I think. I think that would be a title you might see on Hallmark. Uh, but the idea here, uh, there, there's setting that we're going to talk about, there's characters that we're going to fall in love with, there's going to be characters that we might not really care for that much, but there's going to be uh, characters that we're going to love with, love, fall in love with there are four acts, I believe each chapter really comes down to an act. Uh, and these four acts are going to lead us to the end. Act one is going, to provide the, is going to provide us for the background. And it's going to provide us with this problem that needs to be solved. We're going to be introduced to the characters, and then we're going to be seeing, hey, there's this problem, there's this thing that's happening that needs to be solved, that needs to get better. And we're going to see that. Uh, act two and chapter two, we're going to see uh, it's the meeting of, of the man and the woman. It's Ruth and Boaz as they meet. It's, the, it's that point of the movie in which you're like, ah, I know this is going to be the couple that is going to be together at the end. And we see that in act two. In act three, we're going to see the man and woman, Ruth and Boaz. We're going to see them fall in love. And I say that in quotes, but that's how Hallmark pictures it you know they finally look at each other and they realize oh there is something more than just a casual relationship here and there's actually a little bit of a in chapter three this interesting concept of what things that happen on a threshing floor as Ruth is laying at Boaz's feet it's almost like this like they always have in the Hallmark movies the interrupted kiss you know they're about to kiss but then something happens and it doesn't quite work and we see that even happen a little bit in chapter three there's that tension that has been building, that romance a little bit there. But then we're going to see in Act 4 that uh, just like at the 10-minute mark, the last 10 minutes of every Hallmark movie, there is the moment uh, of uh, suspense. There's the, the moment of angst when something goes wrong and, and there's some problem, there's some roadblock that has been put in the way of the couple. And then finally, we'll see that that gets resolved and they live happily ever after. So in a sense, we look at Ruth, and I do, I do believe that it is a wonderful love story. It is a story of hope, and it ultimately will be a story of God's redeeming grace. And finally, I would even say that this would be a Hallmark Christmas movie, because, spoiler alert, I'm going to spoil chapter 4 a little bit, but we see at the end of this whole book that the fact of how Ruth and Boaz come together and how God orchestrates it all is going to eventually lead to King David that will eventually lead to the ultimate king, Jesus, as he's born on Christmas, to the, to the family of Ruth and Boaz. And so, it's interesting now as we will start the book of Ruth, and I want us to look at this as more than a story, and yet a beautiful story all at once. And we're going to start by looking at the setting, and then we're going to just look at a few scenes here within Act 1. And so, uh, we're going to start just by reading verses 1 uh, and 2, actually... Yeah, actually, yeah, we're going to start by reading verses 1 
And we're going to go right through five, one through five. We're going to kind of read this in sections this morning. In the days when the, judge, when, in the, days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and, and Kilion. They were, Ephri- they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the son of Naomi, died, and she, she was left with two sons. These took two Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. So to start, just this first section of chapter 1, we are given uh, an understanding of the setting of the book of Ruth, the characters, the setting, what is going on. So we see the background and characters here, the setting. It's during the days when the judges ruled. We read that here in chapter 1. And now maybe you should be making the connection of why we uh, are going to Ruth in the midst of our study of judges. Because actually, it's not going to a different uh, theme, it's sticking with the same theme. This book, everything that happens in the book of Ruth, takes place uh, in the time of the judges, when the judges were ruling over Israel. And so we know that this is not a good time for Israel. This is a very dark time for Israel, where the carousel of compromise that has continued to happen through the book of Judges, this is when Ruth happens. It doesn't happen in the best of times. It happens in the worst of times. And there are ups and downs for Israel in the book of Judges. And we know that to be true. But this is a time in which we see Israel's apostasy. We see Israel's disobedience. And now we're introduced to this, this family in the midst of the time of Judges. Now, some scholars, they kind of disagree about exactly when this is. Uh, the exact time in the Judges narrative is kind of unknown. They have put some things together, and there are two guesses. Some think it's during this time of Samson. Some think it's during the times of Gideon. Uh, But really, in the end, it doesn't really matter. It's in that section of time in which Israel is in this constant cycle, the carousel of compromise that will continue to go around and around. And it's not a good time for Israel. And yet now, we're going to read a story of hope, really within the midst of the judge's narrative. We see the other part that we see in the setting, the background, is there's a famine in Israel. We're told right away it's during the time of the judges and there was a famine in Israel. Now, if you uh, have listened or heard or know uh, that famine most often times in Scripture, especially when we read the blessings and curses that will come to Israel if they follow him or if they walk away from him, one of the things that will happen if they walk away from God, if they follow other gods, is God says, you will go hungry, there will be famine. And so we see this is a time, not only of the judges, which was such a a whirlwind and such a spiral, but also we see it's a time of famine. Specifically, God's judgment on Israel is being being given out in a way of famine. And so this shouldn't surprise us uh, that God is dealing with Israel in this way. And then we're introduced to Elimelech, and this, this name, and, and uh, I know a lot of you know him as Elimelech, and however you want to say him, it doesn't really matter, but his name means God is king. Now that's interesting, because as God is bringing famine to the land of Israel, we don't see Elimelech, we don't see him thinking that God is king, uh, in, he decides to kind of leave to leave Israel during the days of famine. 
And so they decide to leave during famine, to leave Israel, to go to a better place, to go to Moab, where there's food. Very, um, the thought here is very common sense. We're, we're hungry, there's no food here, so we're going to go to Moab to find food. They are leaving the land of Israel. They're leaving the land that Yahweh had given them, and they're going to Moab. And we're introduced to his family here. And so we see this guy who's named God as king, not really living like that. His wife, who's a Naomi, and her name really means pleasant or sweet. Uh, and so we're, we're to understand that when names are used in Scripture, they're very powerful. They mean something. And so Naomi is seen as pleasant and sweet. Her life is pleasant and sweet at the beginning of all of this. Then we see these two guys that are their sons, uh, Malone and Kilion. Now, I, this is, this is where you see the, the beauty, the beauty of this, uh, story, because these two names are just pointing to what's going to happen. And maybe they were even given after all this happened, but this is what it, this is what their names mean. Malone means sickness or weakness. Kilion means death or wasting away. I don't know about you, but if my parents had, uh, me as a child and said, we're gonna name him sickness or weakness or death, I, no, let's change my name. But in any way, this is going to point out exactly what is going to happen to them. Uh, and so this is the background. We're introduced to this family. We're introduced to the fact that there's famine that is during the days of the judges. So these names, though, in the midst of this remind us of several things. Elimelech, God is king, reminds us that God is sovereign. Whether they move out or whether they believe it or not, God is sovereign. Uh, we also see through Naomi's name, uh, Pleasant. This is God has ultimate hope and pleasantness for Naomi, although she will live a tough life, and we'll see that as we go on. And then finally, we see this idea of sickness and wasting away, weakness and death, that is going to be seen not only in their family, but also seen as kind of how Israel has gone. It's interesting that God would use these names to show us these things. In a way, this family becomes a symbol of Israel, I believe, as I look at this. Uh, they were meant to be pleasant. They were meant to be God's pleasant gift, to have pleasant gifts in the land of the promise. They were meant to be known as the nation whose God is king. And yet, none of those aren't happening. And then we see that instead, Israel has become sick, weak, and wasting away because they've left God. They've abandoned God just as Elimelech and his family have abandoned and left Israel. And so we see, I believe, in these names and we see what's happening here, that there is a little bit of symbolism here that is showing that this family is maybe just a little bit of a symbol of what Israel is going through as well. And that Israel, by leaving God, is going to experience weakness and death and wasting away. So that's our background. We know this family now. We know where it's happening and why it's happening. And they go to Moab. And this is then what happens in scene one in verses three through five. We see a family tragedy happen. A family tragedy happens here in chapter one, act one, scene one. A tragedy that will set everything off is where the rest of the book will go. And the first thing we see is that Elimelech dies. They get to Moab and he passes away. He's gone and now Naomi becomes a widow. Naomi becomes a widow, and uh, again, if you know uh, the curses of Israel, and that you know how widow, being a widow was viewed, this was weakness, this is not a favorable lot in life, could even be seen as a curse, to be husbandless, to be a widow. Uh, so right off the bat, we see that Naomi's pleasant life isn't so pleasant. We see that there's a problem right away. They move to Moab, they get away from Israel to escape 
problem and to escape famine, and they come and they find death. And so we see that this isn't a favorable lot in life, and Naomi is already starting to have this tragedy unfold in her life. Then we see Naomi's sons marry Moabite women. And you say, well, this is not, why is this a bad thing? Why is this a tragedy? Well, the thing about it is, as we know throughout Scripture, the Old Testament, we've been seeing it time and time again, that it, God is very clear that you shouldn't marry outside of Israel because of the false gods that are being worshipped by these other nations. And when you marry women of other nations, you're marrying women of other gods, and that's going to bring you down. And it seems like Naomi and Elimelech's, um, their, their kids, they, they don't care. And they're in Moab, and so they find women that they like, and, and they marry these women. We're introduced to Orpah. Uh, her name, once again, as we're looking at names, means literally back of the neck, which really is a way of symbolically saying she's stubborn. Uh, interesting that this is a stubborn, obstinate woman that is going to really literally turn her neck, turn her body away from Naomi in just a few short uh, scenes, as we'll see that happen. But then we're also introduced to Ruth. And Ruth uh, primarily means companion or friend. Uh, it has the idea of refreshing uh, of a refreshing companion. So Ruth is a companion. So we see, even in Ruth's name, right now, so far, all we've seen is bad stuff happen. And now we see a little glimmer of hope, even in the name of Ruth, that we have a companion, a refresher, that is going to be here in this story. This was not a wise choice. They had married, these men had married into a pagan culture and they, that really has been forbidden, forbidden by God. But even in Ruth, we see a foreshadowing of God's kindness, even in Ruth's name. And so that's going to come as a, it's, you're going to see that as a theme. So then we see the tragedy continues. Naomi's sons die and she becomes childless. After they marry these Moabite women, then they die. Now, Naomi, this is all about her. It's not so much about the, the boys that die. Now she's not only a widow, but now she's childless with foreign daughters-in-law. This is not a situation that anyone would want to be in. Worth and value came from marriage and children, and now Naomi had neither. She has lost everything of value in that culture. So things have gotten as bad as they can get. She is at rock bottom. Some people have compared Naomi to the female version of Job. And there is a lot of similarity here. We can see the heartache and the problem and, the, and the, the hurt that she has to be going through. Later on, she's going to talk about how bitter she is about what has happened. So she has lost everything. And again, by the way, childlessness is another curse of disobedience. It's interesting, as they move away from Israel, the curses that, that they are experiencing, even though they're away, they've turned their back in some way on God and on his people, and now we see that these curses are coming true. She's a widow, she's childless. She is experiencing every heartache that Israel will also experience for their apostasy. And so we see this doesn't seem like hope, right? I said at the beginning of this, this is a story of hope. But right now, it's pretty sad. It's pretty depressing it's kind of like judges but we're going to see as this continues on in in this act we're going to see hope starts to get a little bit more and more as we go on so act one scene two after this um, family tragedy we see naomi begins her return journey to israel there is something that needs to happen now because 
of all that has gone through. Because of the tragedy, now something is going to happen that is going to set off all the other events that will happen throughout the rest of the book. And that is that Naomi decides to return to Israel and she begins her return journey. So let's read verses 6 through 18. Then she, <clears throat> this is Naomi, arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that Yahweh has visited his people and had given them food. So she set out from this place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May Yahweh deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. And then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of Yahweh has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and, where, and there I will be buried. May Yahweh do so to me, and more, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, No more. So the next chapter, we do see this return. They, just, they hear that there's food, right? They hear that there's food. Um, and so therefore, it's time for Naomi and her daughters-in-law to head back to Israel to find food in Bethlehem. And that's where they're going to go. And so they start this journey. And in starting this journey, though, Naomi has this point of conflict in her mind. And she realizes that it's not fair. She believes it's not fair for her to expect her daughters-in-law to come with her on this journey. So Naomi tries to send the Moabite women home. She tries to send them back home to Moab and tries to say, look, you need to turn back and return there. And she'll, she uses lots of different logic here. She points out ultimately the hopelessness of her situation. Uh, she basically says, you guys, listen, you don't want to have the same problem I do. Uh, she does in this, by the way, call upon Yahweh and, and she asks for God's favor on the women. And, and so she does want what's best for her daughters-in-law, presumably. I mean, she thinks she knows what's best for her daughters-in-law anyway. And she's trying to point out to them that they need to go back to Moab. She points out that a life would be better in Moab. Because in Moab, there's men to marry and children to have. Uh, going back to Israel, since she doesn't have any kids of her own that would be able to marry them because the way it worked in Israel is basically if your brother's wife died, you would marry that woman to redeem her, to make it so that she would be able to continue on in the family line. And, and so you would do that. But basically what Naomi is saying is, look, I don't have any other kids. And even if I was to get pregnant right now and then they were born, would you really wait for my kids to grow up so that you could marry them? This doesn't make any sense. She's saying, you aren't going to have any marriage options. And you're not going to, therefore, you're not going to be able to have kids if you come back to Israel with me. So, really, what she's saying is, I don't want you to have the same fate that I have. 
She, remember, is a widow and she is childless. She has no husband and no children. And she says, Orpah and Ruth, I don't want you to have the same thing. Go back where you can have men, where you can have a man to marry, where you can have children and be blessed. And that's kind of her thought process. She even at one point through this, as she's talking through this, uh, and she goes and talks to Ruth and says, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. There's also a point here, though, that I just, this is where Naomi just doesn't quite get it. She thinks that blessing her sister, her daughters-in-law is going to mean sending them back to their false gods. There's something wrong here. Naomi should know that the only blessing that could be really found is as they, is they worship and follow Yahweh, not the gods of the Moabites. So it's kind of interesting. I don't think Naomi is all good in this situation. Like a lot of times you look at her, oh, she's so loving to her daughters-in-law. And I think she does think she's looking out for them, but I don't think she's quite thinking all of it all the way through. And so we see that she tries to get them to return home. She says, you need to go home. It's better for you to go to your false gods, to go to where there's, a, where there's men to marry and children to have. And it seems like logic says, you know, common sense, if you will, says, well, this makes sense. And what eventually happens after Naomi pleads is that Orpah chooses to return to Moab. She turns her neck to Naomi and she walks away. And she, she chooses to return to Moab. After Naomi's persistence, she turns her back on her mother-in-law and returns home. This is not a good thing. This is not a good light on Orpah. Yes, she followed what her mother-in-law told her to do, but she could have done the same thing that Ruth will ultimately do. And that is that Ruth chooses to return with Naomi. And here we start to see that hope. Ruth chooses to return with Naomi to Israel. Ruth clings to Naomi. Instead of kissing her goodbye, she clings to Naomi. And then not only does she cling to Naomi, because it's not just about her relationship with her mother-in-law. It goes much deeper than that. Because what we then see Ruth do is this beautiful passage that many of you have heard, memorized, probably have seen plaques in, in, in houses, is this idea where she says, where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. So that's about her and Naomi. But then she says, your people shall be my people. In other words, she wants to be part of the nation of Israel. And your God, my God, she wants to follow Yahweh. And where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May Yahweh do, do so to me and more, if anything but death parts me from you. So not only does she say, I'm going to want, I want to be part of your people and I want to worship your God, I want to worship Yahweh, then she goes one step further and actually makes an oath in a sense and says, I am going to use the name of Yahweh to say that I'm going to stick with you to death. And so we do see that Ruth, there is some hope here. And what is the hope? Well, this is very interesting. Ruth, a foreign woman from Moab, is doing what all of Israel should be doing. You notice that. This woman who is not an Israelite, and yet she looks at the situation and chooses to trust in Yahweh, to trust in Israel's God, to not trust in the false gods, and to return to him like Israel is not doing. They continue to run to other gods just like Orpah did to run back to other gods. But Ruth says, no, I'm going to move forward and I'm going to return to God, I'm going to return to Israel with you, Naomi. And that's what she chooses to do. So we see a foreign woman is following Yahweh in the way that Israel has failed to do through the book of Judges. That is a glimmer of hope. We see that someone is getting it. It's not everyone falling down. It's not everyone being a Samson. But there are people that are getting how, what it means to follow Yahweh, even if they aren't Israel. Now it's time for a commercial break. 
And we're going to talk a few minutes about the word return. You notice how many times I've said the word return or used it in these blanks? It's still going to happen one more time. Um, there is a reason for this. The chapter, this chapter, chapter 1, uses the word return at least 10 times. You look through it, I, I counted 10 times. This question maybe 11. But this idea of returning is there, whether it's returning to Moab or whether it's returning to Israel. And we see that this word is used several, several, many times throughout this chapter. And we have to notice that this is given, this word, uh, return, is what Israel is told to do time and time and time again. Throughout the Old Testament, throughout Judges, they're told to return to God, return to Yahweh. Repent, in a sense, and to return to him. And, and we see this word is being used several times in this chapter. And it has to, I believe it has to be, as this wonderful work of literature is pointing us to the point that what ha- is happening right now is just showing what should be happening in Israel. They should be returning to God instead of running to other gods. And they're not returning. We say as Naomi and Ruth are turning back to Bethlehem. And returning. So sometimes you'll see the word return, sometimes you'll see it turn back, but it's the same idea. As they turn back to Bethlehem, so Israel should turn back to God. Ruth embodies this as she is not only returning for the sake of food, because it seems like Naomi is just returning because, oh, there's food again, so I'm going to go back to Israel. But as we've already looked at Ruth, part of her returning is to return to a people and to return to Yahweh. Now, she's not returning in the sense that she left and came back, but she never really was, but now she's coming. But we're told here in this passage, uh, actually late, uh, later on, and I might point this out again, but in chapter 1, verse 22, it says, And Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. So the word return is going to continue to point us to the fact that Ruth and Naomi are returning to Israel, just like Israel should be returning to the God, to re- be returning to Yahweh, and yet they're not. Very interesting that that would be in here. Commercial over, and we're back to Act 1, Scene 3. Naomi and Ruth return to Bethlehem. Again, this word return, we see this at the end of this chapter, verses 19 through 22. And so the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they had come to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, Is this Naomi? And she said to them, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for Almighty has dealt with me with has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me? The Almighty has brought calamity upon me. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter in law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Alright, so this is a sad moment, and yet we're gonna see a little hope. They returned to Bethlehem. The town was surprised to see Naomi in this state. Remember, she left with a husband and two sons. She comes back as a childless widow with nothing but one foreign woman who is in tow. This is a different woman. She obviously looks different. They, they are, there is this Naomi. Is this the same Naomi that left and now has come back and is, is miserable because all she has left is one foreign daughter-in-law? And so they're surprised to see her. And then she says, yes, it's me, it's Naomi, it's the one you know as Naomi, but no longer am I going to be called pleasant, for now she changes her name to Mara, which means bitter. You see, Naomi is seeing what God has been doing, but don't miss, by the way, throughout all of this, that she keeps referencing Yahweh and the Almighty and God, and it's not that Naomi has decided not to believe in Yahweh, it's that she just believes that he's out to get her. She just believes that, all, he has brought bitterness in life. And now there might be partial truth 
If God is really laying out a curse because of their disobedience, that's very possible. But I think it's more probable to look at the fact that God is using these situations to draw her back to Israel so that what we will see happen through the rest of this book will be possible. And so she sees it as bitterness. She sees it as that God is sovereign, but she doesn't have any hope. She doesn't believe, she doesn't really trust in his loving kindness. She might believe in his sovereignty, but it kind of leaves it at that. But we're going to see through the rest of this book that it's not just God is not just bringing bitter times for her, but he is going to bring refreshment. He's going to bring pleasantness by the end of this book. She sees her life as bitter and empty, and this is the way that she is living. But then, even after seeing this, we're told this in the very last verse. It says, And they came to Bethlehem, by the way, means house of bread, at the beginning of barley harvest. And they say, okay, big deal. They had been living in famine. There had been famine in the land, and now it's time for harvest. Don't miss this. This is, this is something that is used at the end of this chapter to propel us into the next chapter to say, look, harvest is here. Good times are coming. And that's what we see happen here. They had returned and now it is time for harvest. Harvest is a sign of plenty and a sign of good things to come. Things are about as bad as they can get, but blessing is waiting just on the other side. Harvest is still coming. And I think this is exactly the foreshadowing that this author wants to give us as then we move into chapter 2 and we start seeing all of a sudden good things coming of the bad things that happened. It's not that all the bad things that happened weren't really bad. They were bad and they were bitter. But God is going to use them to bring great good and to bring his glory. And we're going to see that happen through the book of Ruth. So I have a few things I want to just draw out today from a few other passages in scripture for us. Because we look at this story, we look at chapter 1, and there's not a whole lot that's there like, okay, this is what you need to apply. I mean, you could say, don't be bitter. You could, you could say, you know, trust God. You could say, uh, don't name your kids sickness and death. Okay, there's things that you could probably draw out for, for some application. But this morning, I want to take the whole of the chapter and really looking ahead at the book. And I'm, I know I'm going to be stealing a lot of thunder from, from the other sermons that are coming. But we need to keep this first chapter in context of the whole book. Good is coming even though it starts out very, very bad and very, very bitter. And so it's going to start there. But I want to take this idea of the bitter and the bad being turned to good. And I want to look at that and what it means for us. And today I'm not going to tell you what you need to go out and do, but I'm going to hopefully just tell us all what we need to go out and think and feel and believe. And then we can see throughout Scripture that God is good even in the bad times. And that's what I want to say for all of us. The main point that I believe that we can see through the book of Ruth is that God makes the bad good. I don't know if that's right in grammar, probably not. But God makes the bad good. And I want to, point, I want to look at that for a little bit. And I don't want to minimize what's happening here in chapter 1. Because you could just kind of look over it. There is real pain here. She is a widow. She is childless. There is death. Ruth lost her husband and the opportunity to have kids, so she thinks. We see that there is much to be bitter about. There is much sadness. There is really bad things happening. And I want to say this morning that maybe you're in a place where you feel like you're bitter. That God is doing bad things to you. That bad things are happening to you. And 
I'm, I'm not here to say that what you're feeling isn't true. I'm not here to say that, well, it's not really bad. I mean, you might think it's bad, but God really thinks it's good. No, there are bad things that happen, but God can take what's really bad and make it really good. And that's what he wants to do, and he wants you to be faithful as he does that. And I'm going to look at a few passages in Scripture that have kind of been drawn out to me uh, over the last few weeks. And I don't know what you're going through. Maybe you're not going through anything right now, but there will be a day when you just feel like you want to be bitter. You just feel like bitterness is going to take over because nothing but bad is happening to you, just like Naomi felt. But let's, I want to take some time today to look at what God says about that and how we should respond. I'm going to go to what is becoming one of my favorite passages in Scripture, uh, I didn't realize it was until I really had listened to this and studied it out. We're going to go to the book that maybe none of you have ever read, uh, Lamentations. The book of Lamentations is found after the book of Jeremiah, uh, and Jeremiah is the writer of Lamentations. And if you know anything about Jeremiah, he is not a uh, very uh, happy guy. All right, Jeremiah uh, has seen the bad, and it makes him sad and bitter. Some would even say depressed. But what we see happen... In Lamentations, as he writes this, I'm going to give you a little context, but Lamentations is written at the time of the exile, and Jeremiah is looking at Israel being taken captive and taken away, and he is extremely upset, and he is extremely saddened, and he has some things to say to God, like, how can you be doing this? In chapter 3 of Lamentations, uh, we actually see the first uh, 18 verses uh, basically talk about how bad things are and how bad he feels. Uh, that God has given him affliction, that he is under the rod of God's wrath, that God has made his paths crooked, that he says God is like a bear lying in wait, a lion in hiding. He turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces. He has made me desolate. He bent his bow and set me as a target for his arrow. These are some of the things that Jeremiah is saying in the book of Lamentations and and in chapter 3 specifically. He is saying things are really bad, and they were really bad. There were foreign nations coming and destroying Israel and taking people out of Jerusalem, and the exile is happening. This is not a good thing, and there are bad things happening. And Jeremiah is saying, I am heavy. I feel like you have abandoned us. There is affliction. There is all of these things that are really causing me great pain. And in the midst of that, we find verses 19 through 22. In the midst of all of that, 19 through 22 is a glimmer of hope that we can't miss. Even as Jeremiah is feeling all of these things and understanding that life is bad right now, this is what he says in verse 19. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning, Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. And I'm just going to continue. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke of his youth. It is good, Jeremiah says. And so in this passage, and I I said 19 through 22, really we're looking at 19 through 25 through 26 that it is good to wait on God, that the Lord is good to those who wait for him. We can find hope in his love and goodness. His hesed is his loving kindness, his loyal love. And I didn't mention this back in Ruth, but that word is used a couple of times. Uh, as uh, Throughout the book of Ruth, it's going to be used several times. Hesed means loving kindness, loyal love, the love that God has for his covenant people that he won't turn his back on. 
And even Ruth is kind of portrayed as someone who is going to have that type of love, that type of loving kindness, that type of loyal love for Naomi. And so God is going to even more show that, that hesed, that loving kindness, that loyal love. He's going to show that. And that's what Jeremiah is getting at here. The steadfast love of Yahweh never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. You know, we sing that hymn, Great is Your Faithfulness. I think some of us just think that's supposed to be sung when we're feeling good and happy, when God is doing good things in our lives. But actually, those words were originally written at the worst time in Israel's history. And and, and Jeremiah says them as God inspires him to say them, that great is God's faithfulness, even in the times of despair. In the worst of times, Jeremiah takes time to look at hope with the loving kindness of God and his goodness to men. And we can find the same thing. Not that the bad won't still be bad, but that God is good even in the bad times. And we will receive good not because we are good, but because he is good. That the Lord is good. Yahweh is good to those who wait for him. For the soul who seeks him, it is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of Yahweh. We see this in Lamentations, and this is a powerful passage, and says, in the midst of all this bad stuff, in verse 21, but I call to mind, he remembers, he thinks, and therefore what? Jeremiah says, I have hope, because the steadfast love of Yahweh never ceases. God loves even in the bad times. See, I think Naomi lost this. She missed this, and so she became bitter. This is great hope that we can find, and I don't know where you find yourselves today, but even in the worst of times, God is love and God is good. Moving to the New Testament, we see the same thing come true. He, or, sorry, we'll get to Hebrews in a minute. Romans chapter 8, many of you know Romans chapter 8. Many of you have read it, memorized it. Um, it's been mentioned several times, even from the pulpit lately, even at Thanksgiving Eve service. But Romans eight, eighteen through 23 Uh, This is a powerful passage, again, that reminds us that God takes even what's bad and makes it into good. He doesn't mean, doesn't mean the bad isn't bad. It just means that God is going to do something from it and we can trust Him and have hope. In suffering, God promises ultimate good. In suffering, He promises ultimate good. Romans 8, 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Notice that Paul doesn't say here that there isn't any suffering. He says, For I consider that the sufferings, the real bad suffering that is happening of this present time is not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to its decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth and birth until now. And not only have, not only the creation, but we ourselves, we who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoptions of sons, the redemptions of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For he who hopes what, for who hopes what or what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. This is Paul talking about what we do during suffering. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what we pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts and knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. 
For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his Son, in order that we might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those who he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. Many of us know 828. God will cause all things to come together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose, for those who love him. We, we, we say that, we talk about it, but I think a lot of times it just becomes something we say to try to make it feel like what's happening doesn't actually hurt. Well, you know what, I, this isn't really bad because, you know, God will work all things together for good. Listen, the point is, this whole other part of the passage that leads up to that shows us very clearly that there are going to be times of intense suffering. That it doesn't mean that the good is going to come tomorrow. The good might not come until we see it in heaven. Maybe it'll come today. I hope it does. Uh, people, uh, people, the psalmist hope that God will, they'll see it during while they are living. But what we see here is that ultimate good, ultimate salvation through Jesus Christ will come even though suffering exists in the world. God will bring ultimate good even from things that are actually bad if we are called by him and love him. Ultimate good comes as God is saving us and is making us more like him. That is ultimate good. And so even if you're going through a time of bitterness and trial and a tough life, hard things, know that what the Bible says is that his Holy Spirit will help you through that he is going to make this work out together for good, and you might not see it tomorrow, you might not see it next year, you might not see it until you're in heaven, but you will see that God is working in you to save you, and he continues to do that, and to make you more like Jesus. And that's what he's going to do even in the worst of times. And so we don't get bitter, but we have hope. And finally, whereas we have hope, and we know that God is ultimately good, we, I want to look at this last section in Hebrews chapter 12. And this was mentioned on Wednesday night if you were here for the Thanksgiving Eve service. And I, it was so incredible that it was mentioned because Justin and I had not had any conversation about me using this verse. So this is how God works. Hebrews chapter 12, again, another passage that many of you may know. Just want to say, the background of this is Hebrews chapter 11, the Hall of Faith. And these people who are told that they're in the hall of faith, that have, that we're told about that we need to emulate their faith, uh, it goes into this whole section at the end of chapter 11 of all the suffering that they experienced. It's not that all these people had faith because life was easy. It's because they had faith despite the fact that they suffered. And then in chapter 12, we see this beautiful reminder. This is, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, all those who have come before, who have suffered, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus traded shame for joy, so be encouraged. Jesus traded shame for joy so be encouraged verse 3 consider him who endures from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted there is encouragement to have today chapter 12 goes on and talks about the discipline of the lord not discipline in the sense that we think of punishment but discipline in the sense of life is going to be hard because he's doing something with it he's training us to be more like him he's training us to have the ultimate good, kind of the same thing that Romans talked about. But here in Hebrews chapter 12, we see that the ultimate bad, the ultimate shame, the ultimate bad thing that could happen, the cross, crucifixion, 
Jesus died a brutal and terrible and awful death. Not only that, and we're going to remember that in a moment as we go to communion, but not only that death that he died, but also the sin that he paid for was an incredible amount of suffering. He suffered more than any of us will ever know. And therefore, that is one of, that is the worst moment in history, in a sense. It is bad. It's like I used to say as a kid when we celebrate Good Friday, I used to say, why don't we call it Bad Friday? Because honestly, the death itself was bad. But God brought good from it. The ultimate good, the best good. The worst bad gets turned into the best good. Because remember, God makes the bad good. And this is what he did through Jesus. And we're told right here, that the shame of the cross he endured for the joy that he would have of bringing people to himself and redeeming the world of those who would come to know him. Jesus endured the greatest bad for his good and for our good. And the question then today, and for any of you who are here that don't know Jesus, maybe you don't have a relationship with him, you haven't accepted him as your savior, maybe it's part of the reason is because you're sitting here and saying, my life stinks, and I just... My life is terrible. Why would I trust God when I can't even like look up and see anything good? The ultimate good comes as you know Jesus, that he died, take, took on the worst terrible shame that you could take for you and for me to die for our sins so that we don't have to pay for our sins in hell forever. And he did that because he loves us and he did that because he paid for our sin and will forgive us as we even remember that today, will forgive us as he broke his body and died and then shed his blood for our forgiveness. The Bible is very clear that you need to turn to God. You need to return to God. You are his and you need to return to him and and repent and turn back and turn away from what is useless and turn towards Christ because he has the ultimate good for you. And I'm not saying that means your life is going to be easy or good or never have any bitter moments because it will happen. As Romans has already told us, it's going to happen. But it does mean that even in the midst of the bad times and the bitterness, that there is hope to be had because Jesus brought the ultimate good through the ultimate bad. Now, Christian... Today, if you are, if you believe in Jesus, if you are suffering, remember that Christ has gone before you. And as I just read verse 3, don't grow weary, don't grow faint-hearted. When life is hard, don't give up, don't be discouraged, don't run away. Don't be Orpah and run away. Don't be Naomi and hold on to bitterness, but be Ruth and trust in God and move forward. Because here in Romans chapter 12, we're told, consider Jesus who endured the ultimate suffering for ultimate good, that you can endure suffering as well and that you will not grow weary or faint-hearted. It is a struggle, as verse 4 will say, (laughs) in your struggle. It is a struggle, but God gives hope because he is good and he has loving kindness that will never end. Those are the things we can hold on to. Now those are the things we can remember. And now we have an opportunity uh, to move towards... Communion. And uh, I would like to ask the men that I asked to come forward, and Pastor Justin, if you come forward and join me here. And we have an opportunity of all that we've just talked about. We have an opportunity.